When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Andrea Barrett, author of the story collection, Natural History. I'm going to be 68 this year, so I've been around for a long time. And almost everything I thought I knew as a girl has turned out not to be true. Almost everything I thought I knew as a young woman has turned out to be not to be true. Almost everything I thought I understood as a middle-aged woman, it turned out I misunderstood. It's, you know, growing older is super interesting in that way. We'll be back with Andrea Barrett after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show, Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers to donate today. 
Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is fiction writer Andrea Barrett, whose work reflects her lifelong interest in science and natural history. Her fifth book, a short story collection called Ship Fever, won the National Book Award. Her short story collection, Servants of the Map, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. Since Ship Fever, Barrett's books have included recurring characters and families, which weave through different locations in several centuries to form a loose web. Her novel, The Air We Breathe, first offered a family tree with characters she has visited again and again. An updated and larger family tree appears in her new collection, Natural History, which include six stories largely set in a small community in New York State around the time of the Civil War. The central character is Henrietta Atkins, who is a single woman, a scientist, a naturalist, and devoted sister. The stories evoke the ways women's lives and the expectations society has of them have shifted across time. They show how small events have large reverberations over time and generations and the ways we are linked to our past and to one another. We began the discussion with me asking Andrea Barrett this question. These stories are all linked stories, and they all generally take place around the Civil War-ish, that time in history. And I'm curious about um, why that time, and if there's something about that time with our connection to the natural world that maybe we don't have now. Oh, that's interesting. Um, You know, I think... Partly the time in the Civil War is also the time when there was this huge, um, Darwin was writing. And so everything was changing in terms of natural history and what people understood about the the world. Um, Origin of Species was published in 1859. So everything that people thought about the way the world was put together was just about the change. And why I invented the character who's at the center of this book, uh, Henrietta Atkins, she first appeared in a story, an archangel, as a young woman going to a natural history summer conference and reading Darwin for the first time. And uh, the age I posited her then meant that she had to be born before the Civil War. So in a funny way, it's a kind of coincidence that she's a little girl during the Civil War and has these interactions with people. So I had to start thinking backwards, what would it be like to grow up before the Civil War and before those things were published and to view the world in one way and then be a young, really intelligent, inquiring young woman, um, just as all these new worldviews were coming into being. And uh, by the end of the last of the stories concerning her, it's Prohibition. So it's 1921 that she's been through these 70 odd years of great change in the world, great change in politics and huge changes in science. So that gave me a lot to write about. It feels when you talk about it, like it would be a daunting task to understand (laughs) both natural history with the specificity that you do and history. And what's your process for that? It is a little daunting sometimes. (laughs) I just, you know, I just read a lot. I'm not a historian. I'm not a scientist, Um, but I'm a good reader and I'm patient. So, um, 
I always start whatever I'm writing about by reading just some general histories of the time, kind of synthetic works that bring together a lot of different elements. And then I just use the bibliographies in those books and I cast back to the next level of books. And then I read those and I use their bibliographies and that'll usually bring me back to the original sources, which is to say people's letters and diaries and archives. So um, I'm always kind of tunneling back, trying to get back to the time when those documents were written. And that's what really helps me the most in the end, once I have a a kind of generalized grounding in the field, um, to put that stuff behind me, because those are interpretations that people like me are making now or 10 or 20 or 50 years ago. But it's much more useful to go back and read what Henrietta would have been reading then, to read the books that were being published in 1865 and 1875 and 1885, to leaf through old newspapers. Um, I look at a lot of old magazines because not just the articles are interesting, but the advertisements are interesting, the corsets and the patent medicines and the um, weird little farm gadgets and everything else that's going on. It, it gives you a feel for the daily texture that I can't get any other way. So, and that's fun. I get to look at almost anything and say, oh yeah, that's work. I'm not really just fooling around. That's work. So it sounds a lot like an embodiment process for you that, w- that when you're reading this, you're sort of embodying Henrietta, like almost like an actress would. Um, That's such a cool way to put that. I don't think I've ever heard anybody to say that, but that is what it feels like. I'm trying to get into her skin. I'm trying to forget what I know about our interpretations of what happened then and feel the world as it felt to her then without understanding who was going to win the Civil War or whether Darwin was going to triumph or not triumph or whose theories would turn out to be true. We, We don't know that now about what goes on in the world around us now and she didn't know it then so things that seem obvious to us now about say how prohibition is going to turn out of course weren't obvious to the people living it so I'm all the time trying to strip myself back to that state of of not knowing or of only knowing what's put before me that year and that day because there really isn't any other way to bring a character fully alive then if I impose my my politics and my understanding of the world and my thoughts about how the world did or did not turn out on her, then I'm I'm not writing anything historical. I'm just sort of putting our ideas of now in fancy dress of the period then, which I don't think is that interesting. Yeah, and you mentioned that Henrietta came from your last book. Is that common for you? And is that an experience where the character won't let you go? Yeah, it's it's so common for me. Uh, it's almost become impossible to shake. Every book I've written since Ship Fever has generated new characters and situations that have fallen into another book or sometimes several other books. I'm very lucky that way. It's like everything I write becomes a story generating mechanism for the next thing. I, it's not like I see all these things lying ahead of me in the future to write. I really never know what I'm going to write next, but um, whatever I'm writing, some things, some people and situations like Henrietta um, really will stick with me. And I, I don't feel done with them. I feel a need to return to them or to some character related to them or to some predecessor of theirs. And that's where the next thing grows from. And does some of that come out of the research that you 
don't use. Like, you know, you probably, when we were talking about this embodiment and you reading and looking at the ads, there's, I mean, you're funneling all that information into the most salient. And so then you have all this other information floating around your head. It's like the outtakes. Is that, are, are those what maybe fascinate you later? Sometimes they do. I, I'm, I very often discover stuff um, that ends up in what you call the outtakes. It's really interesting, but not relevant exactly to what I'm writing at the minute. But I do save all that stuff and I make little notes. It's sort of the equivalent of, huh, wonder if I want that later. Um, and I, I you know, will find some way to save or bookmark those elements in case I want to go back. I don't use any of those things by any means, but... Um, I do have all sorts of files, both on paper and in my computer, where I have little threads of ideas that pop up from those outtakes. And once in a while, I'll go back to those. And once in a while, I'll use one of them. So let's talk about Henrietta. She had a sister. She lived in, I would call it, since I grew up there, the real upstate New York, which is, you know, near Rochester, Hammondsport, Penyan, near the Finger Lakes area. Yeah. She was a teacher, a scientist. She really brought her students along to study caterpillars, to study the natural world. And she was single and deliberately so. So I just wanted to ask you more about who she is on the page and what was important for you to share about her. Being single is a very important component of her life. One reason I wanted to do that is I really immersed myself in a lot of the writings of sort of mid to late 19th century naturalists, uh, women naturalists. And there are many, and many of them are very good, and almost all of them are wonderful writers, or they wouldn't have been published. They had so much to overcome just to be published. Um, Many were also married uh, to husbands who taught in universities or were scientists or museum administrators. And so they often got their start as helpers to their husbands, in a sense, illustrating the books or doing research for the books and then broke off on their own. And um, I wanted to think about what the path would be like for a woman who didn't have that help behind her, who had to try to break into that very densely male world uh, on her own. So all she has is she has a sister who she loves and nieces that she loves, um, family, friends, and a very dear best friend. And that's a lot already. That's more than many of us have, but that that's her world and that's what she's got to work with. And that also means that's the world of her affectionate bonds as well. If she's not going to marry and she's not going to raise children of her own, um, how is she going to express her sense of nurturing and wanting to take care of and love other people? And she does that through both her students and her friends. And that was really interesting to me, um, what that would feel like. I don't have children myself. Um, many, but not all of my friends do. So I've had occasion to think about that a lot in my life, too. If you're not going to raise people who are biologically related to you, Um, who are you going to raise? How are you going to pass your passions and your loves and your brain and everything else along? There's lots of ways to do that. I like to think about that. So one of the things I think about Henrietta is that she, like the natural world, she is fascinated with the natural world, but it's also kind of, as you said, it's a way to understand 
herself and her relationships and this, mm-hmm. this nurturing part about her. And one of my favorite stories in the collection was called Henrietta and her moths. And I'm wondering if we can talk about this story. That was actually the last of the Henrietta stories I wrote. I I wrote that last and then I wrote the title story, but I had been working on the others for quite a while. And I realized that I didn't have anything that would um, both address that nurturing question directly. And also that that would touch on that kind of part of her life where you're, you're in your middle years and everybody's tugging at you for every reason, the young, the old, the in-between. Um, and I was also just very interested in uh, women lepidopterists. And um, I know that's a funny sentence. Oh, I'm really interested in women lepidopterists. But, um, you know, butterflies often get stereotypes somehow as as female or feminine because they're pretty and they're fluttery and so somehow for a lot of women plants birds and butterflies were subjects it was really okay for you to look at as a woman in the 19th century um you know maybe not gutting deer and looking at what they um the contents of their stomach were not doing something big and bloody but sure fluttery little butterflies and uh so i read an awful lot of lepidopterous books from men and i just wanted to make one of my own um the closing image and the central image of the story um what happens to the the two nieces and what the older one tries to do to the younger one. That really caught me by surprise. I don't know where that came from. It slayed me, that ending. It was so beautiful and so insightful. Can we talk about it or should we talk around it, the ending? No, we can talk about it. It's not a book built on heavy plot surprises. Okay. So in this story, basically... Henrietta is very close to her sister, Hester. I mean, she loves her with a fierceness and they chose very different lives. Hester chose a life of marriage. She has three daughters, but that was not without many, many miscarriages that also really brought her down emotionally, physically impacted her marriage and really impacts even the life of the kids that she has. And Henrietta turned an old like an outer building on the property into this place where they kept caterpillars and cocoons and they would, she come, would come with her students and they would feed them and watch them go into chrysalis and watch them emerge and record what they ate. And as she's there with her three nieces that are various ages from, I think five and up, or maybe one's an infant then. Yeah. What the littlest one is still in, um, not walking. She's maybe eight months old and then five and maybe 10 or 11. You know, one of the things I think that happens with children is that they emulate the uh, adults around them. That's how they learn to interact with the world. That's how they learn to understand um, who they are. And that's maybe where their curiosity is born is they start with the curiosity around them and then maybe it builds and grows. And as she's spending more and more time with her nieces, her sister feels really lost to her. Her sister is um, just probably has a lot of postpartum. She's depressed. She's overwhelmed and she's not as present in her life. So that's part of the reason why she takes over with the, the nieces. And so as she's in a way like dissecting these specimens and teaching her kid, the nieces about them, the one of the older nieces is 
maybe bored or just frustrated because she wants the baby to be her friend, to play. Yeah. And she's she's realizing it's almost like the, 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 the butterflies are what the potential is, right? We start as a caterpillar and then we fly. And flying seems a lot more fun than being a caterpillar. And the, the, at the end, she takes the scissors and she runs it along the back of her baby sister because she wants the older version to emerge. She wants the butterfly yeah. to emerge so she has someone to play with. And it's such this beautiful concept because she's, she's right you know, that older person is in the baby. It just doesn't really come out the same way. She has to wait for it to grow. It's not as fast of, of a, of a mutation. And then you end where she says the noise Henrietta heard from the table was she realized Marianne jabbing the points of the scissors into the wood. Hester, Henrietta thought, where was Hester? Where was Hester? Oh my gosh. It makes me cry because it was so beautiful because she wasn't, she was saying like inside of her sister, who's gone to this darker place, like how can she cut her open and get her spirit back, her spirited sister back? Um, thank you for that reading. That's a lovely way to think of that. Yeah. There's this way in which we so want to label people and their feelings and we so want to put them in boxes. So, you know, we look at someone like Hester and we think, Oh, she's got postpartum depression, but that, you know, that doesn't speak to the complexity of what she's feeling or how deeply she's lost. It doesn't really speak to anything. It's just a box. And so but by removing that concept, um, that, that label that we have now, um, I can maybe let Henrietta think a little more deeply and um, metaphorically about how lost her sister really is and how she really can't access her anymore. And butterfly imagery, caterpillar imagery is very ancient. I mean, it goes back to all sorts of Greek myths, but at the center is that feeling of um, metamorphosis, of change of one thing into another thing. Can we help it? Can we not? There's an awful lot of children in the world who've picked up a pupa or a chrysalis and opened it trying to see the baby butterfly inside and just found all that slimy goo because um, the way the caterpillar changes into the butterfly is to dissolve and reshape all those cells. So I'm trying to layer all, all that knowledge, some of which is conscious in us, some of which isn't together with all those feelings and get you... Um, to really feel the bond between Henrietta and Hester and to know in that moment that her sister is gone in one sense. She's alive in another sense through her children who Henrietta can love. Their feelings as sisters are never going to be the same again, but there's the possibility of another set of feelings. It all sounds silly when I try to articulate it. That's why we have fiction. I, it, um, when I explain it, it just sounds reductive. If I can make you feel it in a moment through an image and a set of characters, then you can feel it freshly again. And I'm so glad that you did feel that. <laughs> yeah, I'm still crying. Oh. <laughs> and you said that it was a surprise for you. So, yeah. you know, so many people who listen to this podcast are writers. Like, do you remember that moment of surprise and like how it came to you or even if you don't know how it came to you how you dissected it back to understand how it came to you yeah I kind of remember I, I was struggling with the story for a long time it was much longer for a long time 
but you know, I, I had these three nieces and their aunt in a room and a bunch of caterpillars, a bunch of uh, pupa, a bunch of students and just thinking what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And sometimes I think all writers know this, you get all caught up in thinking about what you want to do. And I, at least I forget to pay attention to what I've already gotten on the page and the reality of that. So it, some point I realized, wait, I've got a baby in a room with a bunch of kids and a bunch of scissors and a bunch of um, leaves and compost and dead things. And no one's really paying attention to the baby. And I've got this harried aunt who's trying to teach a class and watch her nieces. And so she's given the task of watching over the baby to a girl who's too young. She's five to be doing that. And you know, that's not going to work out well. So what's going to happen? And, you know, suddenly I saw, as we do as writers, you just sort of see the next thing. And I was very startled. And so I, you know, I wrote down some rough equivalent of the scissor scene. And then I had to spend months after that trying to make that make sense. You know, what did that mean? How, how was I going to work out the mechanics of that? How, which hand was she going to hold the scissors in? How is it going to happen without her aunt noticing? But that's just uh, head work. We all know how to do that as writers. That you know, there's craft elements that when you finally see where you want to go, you can put those to work. But the moment when you see where you want to go, that's always a surprise. I still have no idea where it comes from. I still feel totally lucky when it comes. Um, I, I don't know, maybe you can explain it. I, I can't really, it's just a gift. Um, you work for a while and nothing happens and then you get a gift. And then you try to take advantage of the gift and, and make the gift have meaning. And that that's just work. I mean, it's pleasant work, but that's just work. Anybody can do that part. How much of your writing process takes place on walks in nature? I think more than I understand sometimes because almost all those moments come when I'm walking or outside in some way, um, whether I'm uh, swimming or sitting on the back of a motorcycle or snowshoeing or walking, um, something about being outside and having some kind of repetitive motion. People have known this for a long time. It makes ideas bubble up in your head. And so when I'm stuck um, with a piece of writing, the the thing I most often do is get up and go for a walk. I have a very active dog and I take her out and we just walk. And between one step and another, again, every writer listening to this will have experienced it. You know, one step, you don't know what you're doing. And the next step, you can see where it's meant to go. And then I just go home and, and go back to work. And then I know what I'm doing. So you can write off your sneakers and your dog as business expenses. <laughs> Why have I not thought about the dog before? I can write off the dog food, <laughs> the vet bills, everything. Awesome. One of the things that really struck me overall with this book was that it was so much about storytelling. Many yeah. of these stories either had characters telling a story, the unraveling of the past, either through story or confession, and also some desire to change history to fit the story. So overall, just with storytelling, I, I think you were probably conscious of this, but I just wanted to ask you about that as a theme and something intrinsic in all these stories. Uh, I wasn't conscious of it for a long time. I was in the story called The Regimental History because that's very explicitly about 
how we make history, how we tell the stories of history, how evidence gets lost or distorted, um, omitted or changed. But I didn't know it was part of the whole book until quite late. And when I wrote the title story, um, that for me also was just one surprise after another. I thought I was going in completely other directions several times. And then it turned out to go in the direction um, that it did go. And I, and I was like, oh, um, that's what that story is about. And that's what that whole book is about. And then as I uh, started to revise it as a book, I tried to bring up that element a little more. I was quite unaware of that for a while, that everybody was telling stories to everybody else and all the stories were changing and mutating over time. It's not a surprise, I guess. I've been doing this for a long time and, and I'm interested in that, but it's never emerged so overtly in my own work before. What do you think it is? I mean, you've dedicated your life to being a writer, but what do you think it is about storytelling that is overt, but maybe even not even that obvious that we need as humans? I, I don't think we can make meaning out of the world or out of our lives without storytelling. I certainly can. And, and I don't think most people can. I mean, the world is just a jumble of perceptions and actions and sense moments. And it's just a jumble. I mean, how do we how do we move through it without telling back to ourselves what we think we have experienced, what we think others have experienced? Um, there's just, you couldn't get out of bed in the morning if you couldn't tell a story to yourself about why you were getting out of bed. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? Why do you think it's important? Who do you love? Why do you love them? Why do you want to take care of them? What do they need? Those are all stories um, and they all blend together into an overarching story I think the thing I've learned most over years of doing this is um, how easy it is to forget that everybody else has stories too, just as important to them as our stories are to us. And that um, as we move through the world and interact with other people, it's really hard for most of us to remember that for them, we're just characters in their story. We're just, and we're often quite unimportant characters. They have their own vivid narratives that they're moving through and we're just bit players for them it doesn't feel like that to us it feels like our story then they're bit players in our story but we all feel that way and I constantly have to remind myself of that when I get irritated at someone or something goes awry and I just have to take a step back and say but this isn't just my story this is their story what does that person need and want and who am I to them and how am I getting in their way or helping them uh, I will never learn it, I guess, well enough. Well, I want to talk about this this story that you mentioned, the regimental history, but I first want to point out a line that was one of my favorite lines in the collection, and I believe that it is Henrietta. And she, when she was young, very young, maybe 12, she could read and write, and she would go to her neighbors' houses and read and write letters that came from the front lines of the Civil War. So she went to this one family and would write letters. And some of the letters she got were also written by a second party who were taking the stories and translating. So there's a lot that could be lost in translation. And in this scene, she was talking to the brother about some of the 
stuff that happened in the war that the letters he was getting at his house were from his two uncles, his father's brothers. And she says, we don't learn everything at once. And that goes on. And she says, we don't learn everything at once. She said, you might have liked those yourself when you were eight or 10. You just don't remember what it was like knowing nothing. And what I loved so much about that line, and I want to ask you if you remember writing it and, and talk a little bit about that line, is that that's what kind of in a way what you're staying, saying with storytelling is that you could understand a story in very different ways in very different times of your life and that we don't learn everything at once. So I just wanted to ask you about that line. Yeah, um, that's a weirdly important line to me also because, um, you know, almost every week I, I re-understand or reimagine a story that I've been telling myself all my life in some senses. I'm uh, going to be 68 this year, so I've been around for a long time and almost everything I thought I knew as a girl has turned out not to be true. Almost everything I thought I knew as a young woman has turned out to be not to be true almost everything I thought I understood as a middle-aged woman, it turned out I misunderstood. It's, you know, growing older is super interesting in that way. Um, partly because I at least had a very firm perception at each of those earlier stages in my life that I knew what was going on. You know, I thought I understood what was going on. I thought I was fairly clear-sighted. I thought I was um, seeing things. And then in retrospect from more distance out, it's quite clear I missed virtually everything important. Um, so I'm guessing this maybe happens to other people too. Um, we learn things so incrementally. I, I feel like I could always read, but I couldn't always read. I feel like I could always um, read with understanding, but I couldn't, I was just missing everything. And I know if I'm lucky enough to live another 20 or 30 years that everything I'm saying now will also turn out to be um, not true in one sense that what feels absolutely true and resonant to me right now, I'll probably change my mind about in a while. Does it ever make you want to go become a Buddhist nun and just not talk for a while? Yes, <laughs> it really does. Um, it just makes me never want to open my mouth. I feel like everything that comes out of my mouth um, is wrong. You know, it, it's almost wrong by definition because it's coming out of my mouth. What do I know? I don't know anything. Most of us don't know anything. It's, you know, better I should just sit and listen to people and look at the world. I, I have really nothing to say that's helpful to anybody except, you know, maybe in my work. My work is much smarter than I am. I think because I'm not in control of it and because it's not will that comes from a place in me that I don't understand and I can't articulate and that isn't logical in a lot of senses. And, um, and I'm okay with that. I don't, I've given up trying to control it because I know that it's smarter than I am. Well, what a strange thing to say. What does that mean to say my work is smarter than I am? Is my work some floating spirit? Where I mean, what, that's just a silly sentence, but that's what it feels like. It feels like things happen on the page that that fit together and they make patterns and images and evoke emotions that I have no intentionality and no control over. Uh, and I just have to go with that. Your story, the regimental history, it was really kind of a search for accuracy amongst subjectivity. And as I said earlier, Henrietta was a girl. She was writing 
uh, letters back and forth to the front, um, reading them, responding to them. And these two uncles in the front who were named Izzy and Vic were sending letters, mostly Izzy, that the family was getting and interpreting. He could have said anything. He could have said, I was the hero of the battle today or whatever he said. And later in life, when he came home, they were trying to get more about more details about the stories and fill in some of the stories. And then he died later um, in an accident and they ended up hooking up with some other people from similar regiments and similar areas, bringing all these letters together, trying to be a part of accurately recording the civil war. And there was so much discrepancy in, in letters and storytelling. So what interested you about this story and it seemed like it would be really hard to write. Uh, it was really hard to write. It took me just forever, but it was a great learning experience. Obviously, I guess I'm really interested in history, not just in what happened in the past, but how people make history because I read so much of it. And as I started to delve into Civil War letters and, and saw for myself the discrepancies among accounts, I just got fascinated by the idea of how chaotic the detritus of the past is. I mean, how what we write about a single event or, or a battle or part of a battle, it just depends on who survived, who wrote letters, how good a letter writer they were, what they chose to put in the letters, and then what the people did with the letters afterwards, and what the intentions and um, and even the politics were of the people who then handled the letters and wrote the supposedly definitive history of the battle or the event, everybody's got an agenda. It's the same as saying everybody's got a story. And when you think about history from that perspective, we, we read these um, bland, smooth accounts of the Civil War or, um, you know, of the 20. 2016 election, whatever we're reading about, it looks authoritative at the time. And it's always really easy to forget um, how many competing agendas are at play there and how much evidence has been lost or distorted willfully or otherwise. Um, so I was trying to find a way not just to talk about that because it's not very interesting to talk about, but uh, to embody it. And that that's what that story is really trying to do. It's trying to um, not tell you about the foibles of history, but make you feel in your gut what it's like to, to watch history being made and being crumbled under your fingers. And I don't know if it works that way or not, but that's what I was hoping to do with it. Yeah, it made me think so much about what we do know about the Civil War. Like, how do we know that? And whose story is it? And I mean, obviously, right. there's an, an infinite number of stories you know, every person in the war themselves could have, you know, 30 different stories themselves. But how do we truly understand history and subjectivity is kind of part of it? Like, I want to know what your experience is, isn't it? Even if, you know, your experience was very different than someone else's, that's still your truth. And I want to know that, too. That's why um, I like reading old letters and old diaries and things. I want to know what it even for a single person involved in a single battle, as Izzy was or Vic was, what it feels like one day is different from what it feels like three days later. So if you write a letter at the end of the day when you're hungry and shivering and full of adrenaline and fright, 
and you happen to have a minute and you write home that day, your description of what happened to you that day is going to be incredibly different from what you write home four days later when you're calmed down and you're fed and you're warm and it turns out you're not wounded. And so now that battle, you're writing it in retrospect. And so you might say, make it more glorious. You might make your role in it more significant. You might play up the good things that happened and play down the bad. You might omit some of the terrible things you saw. And that's just one person with one one day's events. So I multiply that by 500,000 and you have a different thing going on. I guess I, I'm curious about your connection to the natural world. Like if you remember how that grew in you as an individual and then how that got so deeply connected to your creative process. Um, you know, part of it, I think, is where I, I grew up. I um, grew up on Cape Cod and so I was always near the ocean. My father liked to fish and um, I was often on the water or near the water. But just really interested in like the little things growing in the sand and the worms and the clams and the plants and stuff. I don't know where that comes from. Maybe that's inborn in us, but uh, it certainly was helped by growing up where I did. And I had a wonderful biology teacher in high school. I uh, grew up in a little town, went to a very small high school and I never thought about being a writer then, even though I read all the time, because I never met a writer. I didn't know writing was something a person can do, but I did know people could be biologists. I wasn't that far from Woods Hole, and I had this great biology teacher. And it's like, oh, you can spend a life studying these things. And so when I went off to college, that's what I did was major in biology. And again, I had wonderful teachers, um, small college teachers who were really interested in the natural history part of biology. And so I'm sure that got fed in me very much then. Um, I don't know why it kept growing the way it did. I'm wondering if you can share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. I'm sure. I I chose um, something from the writer Penelope Fitzgerald, who is just a marvel to me. She often writes historical novels. It's not the only thing she writes, but she has written a number of brilliant ones. And one thing she's astonishing with is often people approaching the subject she approaches will write massive tomes. Not that they're bad, but they're just very big. She writes these little, slim, beautiful books that somehow get the feeling of the time exactly. Um, So I'm going to read a little passage from a novel of hers called The Blue Flower, which is about the 18th century German romantic poet we call Novalis now. Um, And this is the beginning of chapter 44. The book is tiny and there's many, many chapters and they're all like two or three pages long, just these little glimpses. So this is how the chapter opens. Perhaps there would never be another evening quite like this in Weissenfels. The guests were waiting, although they were not accustomed to it. Even in this great airy room, most of their faces had turned a comfortable fruit red, but they were unable to settle down to their familiar inspection of each other's costume, followed by discussion, slight advance, slight retreat, circulation, repetition, deep and thick gossip, then indulgence in pickled goose legs, black ham, fruit liqueurs, sweet cakes, more spirits, an amiable progress home, an uncertain climb up to bed. Tonight, they could not quite count on anything. Uncertainty and expectancy moved among the guests like the first warning of fever, 
touching even the most Stalin. I've read that maybe 40 times and it still just astonishes me. Um, it's one little paragraph, but you get the whole feeling of a culture, a time, a class, a community. Um, and it's, you know, it's beautifully rhythmic. It's delicious to the ear. It's delicious to the eye. I really love that. And she's always like that. She's great. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, we were talking about the last story in the book, Natural History. And um, what I chose for this was a small passage from that because it was really hard and tricky to write. And I changed it maybe a hundred times. And when I finally got it to where it needed to be, that was the moment when I understood um, what the story was about, maybe what the book was about. Um, for me, it's sort of the central image um, in that. So this is on uh, page 177, and it takes place in the summer of 1988 at a little gathering for scientists, structural biologists that the two central characters have already attended several times. On the first afternoon of that year's meeting, two young women who'd been there before walked through the uncut field talking about their earliest visit when they'd been slotted into tiny attic rooms in the oldest dormitory, famously hot, famously airless, usually assigned to the youngest and most obscure of the participants, who'd be stuck there now. They talked about the year it had rained every day, the year the sugar maple was hit by lightning, the year Mahaley dropped dead on the tennis court. A sound they couldn't at first identify, someone playing a clarinet in the trees near the porch, joined the cricket's background buzz. They followed the serpentine path, an S linking the central building and the trees across the field back towards the sound. The women who didn't and wouldn't have children thought not about the links between generations, but between friends and ideas. Their view shifted every few yards. First, they faced the front entrance squarely, then the dormitories to the north, then the front again, the south facing dorms and the front again. Whoever mowed the path had probably intended that effect, which made the women forget they weren't invisible. No one would walk through the thigh-high grass without the path, which even the breeze seemed to follow. No one would flush the turkeys from their hiding places or surprise the snakes, or hear the blackbirds and finches and hawks and crows, so many calls and cries that the sound of the clarinet almost got lost. It's sort of, it's that sense of shifting perspectives as they sinuously move through the field that um, for some reason metaphorically made sense of the whole story for me. And was this the last one you wrote? Yeah. Where do you write? Uh, in a little bedroom upstairs that I turned into an office. It's nothing fancy. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I go walking. <laughs> I'm lucky enough to live out in the country and our house backs up to a pile of wood. So I walk and walk and walk. And in the winter, I either cross country ski or snowshoe. And um, yeah, it's really pretty. We have great lichen here. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, my dear friend, Margot Livesey. We've been sharing work for more than 30 years now. She reads drafts, all my drafts, everything I write, and I read all hers. And uh, I'm incredibly lucky to have to have her in my life and to have such a great working relationship. How have you dealt with rejection? Badly. <laughs> um, 
when I was uh, young, I, I wrote for a long time before I published anything and was rejected so very much. And I didn't deal with it well. I, you know, I would just be crushed and not write for a while and really let it affect my writing life. Um, I deal with it better now because I've had some success to cushion that rejection, but I'm still not great at it. And that's embarrassing to me. I wish I could just shrug it off. And what is your favorite word? Gleam. Like the stars were gleaming in the sky. Thank you so much for sharing your time in this conversation. I'm so appreciative. Well, thank you. You're a wonderful reader. I love these questions. Um, You really gave me some insight into the book I didn't have before. If you liked today's show with Andrea Barrett, author of Natural History, check out my interview with Margot Livesey, Andrea's first reader. We discussed her novel, The Boy in the Field. We talked about when a real-life story has enough spark to become the basis for fiction, the search for answers about our identity, and crafting a pandemic novel. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 380 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.